America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is The Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. Another great day and another great threat from Vladimir Putin. A threat to blow up the world with uh, the president of Russia personally presiding not on blowing up the world, not this round, but on a very worrisome rocket test, which uh, was meant to get the attention of the United States of America. Has that worked? Well, no. Uh, President Biden has announced another $800 million in aid to bolster Ukraine's military efforts in the Donbass region. Uh, there's also an announcement from the Moscow Times that at long last Mariupol has fallen. It has been liberated. Uh, I'm not sure many residents of Mariupol, many of whom are dead, most of whom have left town, uh, wanted to be liberated by the invading Russian forces, but also the steel plant where the Ukrainian army has stubbornly held on the Azovstal steel plant is still in Ukrainian control. We will get to that. The um, Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, says uh, we should uh, be prepared to see even worse atrocities in Mariupol than we did in Bucha, which is horrible to think about. And uh, we, we also have another brand new fight. It's a war to the death, it appears, and not one that anybody needed or wanted or should have sought. But this is one between uh, the state of Florida and uh, Disney World and the entire Walt Disney Company. Is this uh, a good thing that is going on right now with... Uh, the Republican Party in Florida voting to strip Disney of a tax benefits that it got um, more than 50 years ago as a means to lure them into building these gigantic theme parks, which are a huge driver in the Florida economy. Uh, who loses if uh, this goes through and there is continued back and forth to uh, between Disney and uh, Governor DeSantis over a bill that's already passed, the so-called Don't Say Gay bill, which is extremely mischaracterized by that particular designation. We will get to that. We'll be speaking with Aaron Blake about why he rates Donald Trump a very likely presidential candidate. No, not that Donald Trump. We're talking about Donald Jr., who is among the very top possibilities for a GOP nomination, according to Aaron Blake of Washington Post. He'll be joining us in a little while. We'll also speak with uh, Ruben Navarrete, who is going to be talking to us about Operation Lone Star. What is Operation Lone Star? That is an independent operation by the state of Texas taking the place of the federal government, which is supposed to be monitoring the border and trying to enforce border control. They have a problem, however. They can't enforce any of the laws that do exist against crossing the border illegally. That's a federal matter. All they can do is arrest you for trespassing. Is that uh, work? Well, it, it can work if you've trespassed onto someone's private property. But if you haven't, well, it's a different story, and it's complicated. We will get to that 
uh, also on a very busy day on the Michael Medved Show. First off, here was President Biden. He is on his way toward Seattle, where he's going to be visiting today, talking a little bit about Earth Day and about the environment and about making sure that all those Democrats, and yes, of course, the state of Washington is full of them, uh, come out and uh, support Democratic candidates in 2022. Uh, here is uh, President Biden announcing the aid to bolster Ukraine's military efforts in the Donbass. This is clip 25. I'm announcing another $800 million to further augment Ukraine's ability to fight in the east, in the Donbass region. This package includes heavy artillery weapons, dozens of howitzers, and 144,000 rounds of ammunition to go with those howitzers. It also includes more tactical drones. In the past two months, we've moved weapons and equipment to Ukraine at record speed. We've sent thousands of anti-armor and anti-missile helicopters, drones, grenade launchers, machine guns, rifles, radar systems. More than 50 million rounds of ammunition had already been sent. The United States alone has provided 10 anti-armor systems for every one Russian tank that's in Ukraine, a 10 to 1 ratio. We're sharing and will continue to share significant timely intelligence with Ukraine to help defend them against Russian aggression. And on top of this, these direct contributions from the United States, we're facilitating, we're the outfit facilitating the significant flow of weapons and systems to Ukraine from other allies and partners around the world. Okay, uh, and uh, there is more, uh, a new action in, in terms of putting, turning these screws economically on the Russians. This from President Biden, clip 24. Today I'm announcing that the United States will ban Russian-affiliated ships from our ports as they did in Europe. That means no ship, no ship that sails under the Russian flag or that is owned or operated by a Russian interest will be allowed to dock in the United States port or access our shores. None. None. This is yet another critical step we're taking in concert with our partners in the European Union, the United Kingdom, Canada, and further to deny Russia the benefits of international economic system that they so enjoyed in the past. Okay, one of the other battlegrounds that is going to help determine the future of what happens in the Ukraine war uh, is the election that takes place Sunday in France because uh, the challenger to President Macron of France, uh, Marine Le Pen, is, uh, has a longtime uh, romance, I mean not actual romance, but political romance with Vladimir Putin and is promising to lead uh, France away from NATO and toward a reconciliation with Russia. Would that be a good thing for the world? I think it would be a bloody disaster. Speaking of bloody disasters, Russian President, President Vladimir Putin oversaw the first test launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile on Wednesday that he said would make those threatening his country think twice in his latest nuclear saber-rattling. This from the Wall Street Journal. The Russian Defense Ministry said the launch was the first in the testing program, and analysts said it likely wouldn't be deployed uh, for use in the near future. The military announced Wednesday afternoon it had successfully launched the RS-28 uh, Sarmat system, a heavy intercontinental missile that the ministry said could uh, hit targets anywhere in the world 
and evade existing and future anti-missile defense systems. This truly unique weapon will force all who are trying to threaten our country in the heat of frenzied aggressive rhetoric to think twice, uh, Mr. Putin said in televised comments. The uh, Russian president, who was shown overseeing the launch by video conference from the Kremlin, added that the Sarmat missile was made using only domestic components, U.S. sanctions having uh, targeted companies producing parts for the Russian military. Uh, is um, this a, a representative move by a country that's doing well? The Moscow Times says that uh, today the um, Mariupol has been liberated the besieged Ukrainian port city of Mariupol and called off a planned assault on Ukrainian forces' last holdout. Mariupol, a highly strategic port on the Sea of Azov, has been under siege by Russian forces for nearly two months. Fighting has intensified in recent weeks as Russia refocused its invasion toward Ukraine's east. And the last Ukrainian defenders have now taken refuge in the Azovstal steel plant. Block off this industrial area so that not even a fly can escape. This is about the fourth time recently that Putin has compared various opponents of his to flies. We will be right back on The Medved Show. Guitar stylings you heard there are from the rocker Slash with Guns and Roses. Sweet Child of Mine. Was that actually a song uh, somehow uh, meant to uh, be promoting something particularly disgusting? Uh, no, it, it was not. And as a matter of fact, uh, Slash, who is still playing, still playing with Guns N' Roses and Axl Rose and the rest of them, they uh, are still performing, and uh, he is still speaking out where it matters, voicing support for Ukraine. Actually, this was tweeted out from the official blue checkmarked Ukraine uh, Twitter source. Uh, listen to what he has to say. I stand for Ukraine and I stand for freedom and I feel that the other governments in the world should do whatever they can to support Ukraine and give them whatever they need to be able to beat Putin back. Uh, okay, that's that's pretty strong and it's, it's one of those things where uh, right now the level of support, even for people who are entertainment industry lefties, uh, maybe especially from them, is particularly strong for Ukraine. And I think it's partially because uh, President Zelensky has been such an inspiring leader. Uh, is it possible to watch President Zelensky, and I don't care who you are or where you are, whether you're a Frenchman who's getting ready to vote this weekend between Macron and Le Pen or whether you're a Canadian who might have had quite enough, thank you very much, of Justin Trudeau, 
whether you're a German uh, watching the struggles of the new Chancellor Olaf Scholz, you, you look around the world, how many people around the world think, gosh, I wish we had a Zelensky speaking for us. Now, it's true. People rise in stature, even when you're a little guy, and Zelensky is, you rise in stature when you're facing a crisis. But uh, really, this all is remarkable. Meanwhile, somebody else who I think has ended up uh, winning a certain amount of respect around the world during this crisis has been the Secretary of State of the United States, uh, Anthony Blinken. Uh, you may remember that after the disaster in Afghanistan, which uh, at least according to uh, many sources, a Lincoln did not favor his his policy wasn't favored, but he has uh, risen in estimation and respect around the world. He uh, uh, is also speaking out about what we should expect to see in Mariupol once uh, that area is opened to the international press. This is Secretary of State Blinken. What the world witnessed just a couple of weeks ago, when the receding Russian tide from Bucha revealed what was left in its wake in terms of death, destruction, atrocities. We can only anticipate that one, this tide also at some point recedes from Mariupol. Mariupol, we're going to see far worse, if that's possible to imagine. So the conditions there, the situation there as a result of this Russian aggression are truly horrific. We want to see uh, people who are in harm's way uh, if they're able to, and leave it safely and securely. What gives pause is the fact that there have been agreements on humanitarian corridors established before that have um, fallen apart very, very quickly. Okay, this is why it is so unbelievable when people like the former president, Donald Trump, was speaking yesterday about how he longs to see a negotiated peace agreement and they should stop uh, killing before everybody's dead. And okay, that's fine, but how do you make a peace agreement that matters with an opponent like the Russians who are bombing these humanitarian corridors, who aren't even allowing refugees to escape, who are, according to a variety of very much fact-checked sources, uh, the Russians are kidnapping particularly children and taking them away to Russia to make sure that they don't get raised with any small taint of non-Russian identity or ideology. The entire thing is terrifying, and so is the uh, idea that, uh, as Robert C. O'Brien writes, he was a former national security advisor to President Trump, and one of several, of course, like John Bolton was and like uh, General McMaster was. But uh, Robert C. O'Brien is a very smart guy and a very good guy and a very capable public servant. And he says the idea that in 2022, a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council would use nuclear weapons to conquer a neighboring country is unthinkable, yet here we are. For months, Russian officials and commentators have been rattling their nuclear saber and touting Moscow's de doctrine of escalating to de-escalate. In other words, if Russia is losing a war, even one it exclusively started, it reserves the right to use a nuclear attack to end it. 
If Ukrainian forces push Russia out of the Donbass and even Crimea, there would be no way for Mr. Putin to hide Russia's humiliating loss from its people. If such an outcome became likely, would he use one of his thousands of tactical or battlefield nuclear devices to take out Kharkiv, Odessa, even Kyiv, in an attempt to save face and end the war on terms that he dictates? This possibility is surely on the minds of President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, and his staff. He, of course, has been there as national security advisor, so he knows part of what's involved. The time is now to deter Russia from escalating to de-escalate, writes O'Brien. The U.S. must unambiguously communicate to Moscow what lies ahead if it does go down this terrible path. Mr. Putin and his supporters need to understand that if he promote de detonates a nuclear weapon in Ukraine, the U.S. response will be swift and significant, far exceeding the limited export sanctions under consideration around the world in response to Russian atrocities in Bucha. America and its allies shouldn't retaliate in kind with nuclear weapons. The U.S. should, however, be prepared to take other serious actions quickly among the options. And then he goes through a list of options, none of which seem particularly severe. What you wonder is, is it really a good idea for the United States to say that Russia could get away with uh, attacking another country with nuclear weapons without being attacked back, without having some kind of comparable strike, whatever it is, against Russia? I, I'm not sure that the things that O'Brien calls for eliminate Russian air and military assets in Syria and Libya on the same basis. Uh, entirely dismantle all pipelines used to transport Russian oil and gas to the West, advise all non-Western nations, including China, that purchasing Russian oil would result in massive punitive tariffs by the U.S., end Russian dreams of earning hard currency by servicing Iran's nuclear industry. All of these things are tough moves, but as an answer to a nuclear attack, really? Uh, we will get to the question of the future of the presidency and the Republican Party. Who's the likely Republican nominee in 2024? Aaron Blake of The Washington Post coming up. Michael Medved show. We spoke yesterday about the 10 most likely Democratic presidential candidates ranked from number one to uh, number 10 based on the work of Aaron Blake, who is a senior political reporter who writes for The Fix over at The Washington Post. Uh, he is a Minnesota native who has also written about politics for the Minneapolis Star Tribune and the Hill newspaper, and he has a list uh, of the top 10 presidential candidates for 2024, a list that came out actually at the end of February. Uh, they're ranked from 1 to 10, and the top Democratic presidential candidates uh, for that party. Uh, so, Aaron, the, the first question is, it's no surprise you list Trump as the most likely Republican nominee. And you list Biden as the most likely Democratic nominee. Who do you think, uh, between Trump and Biden, has a tighter grip on the nomination? 
Oh boy, that's a, a really good question. Um, I, I think that you know when we do these lists, we do tend to factor in the likelihood of running. So, so basically, the the list is here's how likely these people are to be the nominee. So that includes both their chances if they do run and the likelihood that they run. Um, I, I think it, in both the cases of Biden and Trump, the conventional wisdom would be that they probably run again. Um, I think in both cases that might be a little bit oversold. Uh, and I think that when we're coming, when we're talking about Biden here, and this is what I got to in the piece on the Democrats, is uh, it may come to a point where there is some pressure on him to step aside because of his political standing. Um, and so to, to answer your question, you know, I, I think it's probably more likely that Trump would be the Republican nominee just because if he runs, there there really is nobody that's going to defeat him, probably aside from maybe Ron DeSantis. Uh, Ron DeSantis, and you have, you got a lot of attention for including as number five most likely Republican nominee, uh, Don Jr. Uh, you don't think Don Jr. is going to challenge his father. What you're saying <laughs> is that if Trump doesn't win, that uh, people would want the most Trumpy replacement they could possibly find. And that Donald Trump Jr. is probably that guy. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, obviously Donald Trump Jr. has not run for political office before. Of course, his father hadn't done so before. Um, I think that there are reasons to believe his political career may not be as successful as his father's, but he certainly has demonstrated an ability to appeal to the Trump base in a way that maybe we see flashes of with some of these other Republicans like DeSantis and, and some of these others. Um, but generally speaking, you know, when, you, when you're talking about uh, some of these other candidates, they all kind of carry that maybe a little bit of a whiff of the political establishment with them. And so, to, you know, to the extent that the Republican Party, if Donald Trump Sr. does not run, is looking for that outsider who's kind of a, a middle finger to the establishment and and really outside the box, I think that uh, Donald Trump Jr. can can throw some things at them that they will really appreciate and will remind them in many ways of their father. You have a list of Republican candidates uh, that you think deserve mention who aren't in your top ten. Uh, Senator Rick Scott of Florida, the governor of South Dakota, Kristi Noem, uh, Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, uh, Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming, who's fighting a tough fight for re-election right now. Maryland, uh, got Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, who's a, a, a darling of anti-Trump Republicans. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas and uh, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Uh, finally, with Governor of Texas uh, Greg Abbott. Any of those people who were not on your top 10 who you think uh, since uh, the end of February when you did this previous list think have now moved into what would be a top 10 position? It's a really good question. I think that, um, you know, the, the likelihood of somebody like a Liz Cheney or a Larry Hogan emerging in a presidential primary in the Republican Party is increasingly unlikely. Um, I've included them because they've, been, they've expressed some interest in this, but of course, the party doesn't seem to be moving in their direction. Um, I think if it if it did for whatever reason, and again, I'm not going to say that's that's likely or or going to happen. Um, certainly, Liz Cheney has set herself up to pick up that mantle. She'd be a very conservative 
um, candidate who is not in line with the Trump ideology and, and would have a good chance at that. You know, I think that if we don't have a Trump in the race, um, you know, this is going to be really wide open. And so you're going to see the the candidates like Christy Nome potentially be a, a force to be reckoned with. It's, it's really going to be a situation in which maybe Ron DeSantis would be the early favorite, but there would be a very open primary in which I think, you know, beyond uh, I talk in the piece about how there's basically a, a top tier of Trump and DeSantis. And after that, it all becomes one big jumbled mess. And I think that jumbled mess includes some of those honorable mention candidates. And we could really see a very open primary at that point. What about the uh, the idea that th- there's overwhelming feeling among Republicans and including Republicans who are very, very supportive of President Trump, that he needs to just shut the hell up about the election of 2020 and the stop the steal and the I'm going to be reinstated and we're going to uh, decertify the votes of Michigan and Pennsylvania and et cetera, that, that basically what if someone like a DeSantis said, uh, no, we, we don't want to refight that as an issue for 2024? Is that an issue, the issue of, of decertification and recertification and reinstalling Trump before 2024? Is that an issue that could very well work for a Trump challenger? I think it's it's there's going to be some playing for that angle if it's not going to be Trump himself. Um, there is too much of a belief that this election is stolen in the Republican Party right now. Um, I, I think what you're likely to see more from the likes of DeSantis and others is not necessarily emphasizing this issue, but, but talking around it, maybe not saying everything that Trump wants them to, but not saying anything that's going to alienate him or his supporters. Um, but there will be somebody who recognizes that there is an appetite for that, and that'll be their entree into some relevance in this race. And I think the real question is, it's not just, uh, you know, do 60 to 70 percent of Republicans believe that there was massive voter fraud in this election? Um, I think that that's, you know, certainly polls back that up. Uh, but it's how strongly do they necessarily believe that and how much do they believe that this is something that's going to be worth fighting over four years after the fact. And I think if it's not Donald Trump himself driving that message and and really being a force behind it, I'm not sure this is going to be something that's going to, um, it's going to be a huge issue for a lot of voters. If uh, there is, as as you putting the two pieces together, you believe it's most likely Trump is the Republican, Biden is the Democrat. Who do you think is favored in a repeat of uh, 2020, if uh, it's those two candidates in 2024? Well, there, you know, we do have a little bit of polling on this right now. It generally shows uh, a pretty tight race. Um, I think that's notable for a couple reasons. One is that um, we do see Republicans when it comes to the race for Congress uh, are generally ahead. So Republicans are up by, you know, five, six, seven points on what's known as the generic ballot. For Congress in 2022, but that advantage doesn't necessarily show up when it's Trump versus Biden. It's very close. And so that's one thing. It doesn't seem to be that Trump is benefiting from the strength of his party right now, at least when it comes to the midterms. The other thing, though, is that it's still the midterms, and the midterms do tend to be very difficult for the president's party, whereas presidential reelections, more often than not, presidents do win reelection. And so 
especially in a situation in which Republicans were to take over Congress, whether one or both chambers, which seems likely at this point, it kind of shifts the, the paradigm for the presidential election. Okay, this President is, Biden. Aaron, can you hang on for a few minutes? Because this is a very interesting and important point relevant to this election and the impact of this coming election to 2024. We'll be right back with Aaron Blake of The Washington Post coming up. It is basically insane. The Michael Medved Show. Speaking with Aaron Blake, who's gotten ahead of the curve. Uh, he's with The Fix at The Washington Post. He does an excellent job. He's put together two very provocative pieces, the top 10 GOP presidential candidates for 2024 ranked. Yes, Donald Trump is ranked first. And uh, also the top 10 Democratic presidential candidates for 2024 ranked Democratic. And yes, uh, Joe Biden is ranked first. What I wanted to speak to you about, Aaron, was the potential impact of uh, 2022, where the odds seem to be overwhelming that the uh, Republicans take over at least the House of Representatives of the United States. And I've heard, uh, spoken to some Democratic strategists who actually acknowledge that, yeah, Nancy Pelosi's a goner, it's probably going to be Kevin McCarthy as the new speaker, but uh, they still feel pretty good about holding the Senate. Uh, and that would be, they think, a terrific uh, break, because the with 70% of the country thinking we're on the wrong track right now, there's almost no path for Biden to win. Because it's Democratic control of everything. Who are you going to blame? you got to blame Democrats. But if Biden is there fighting with a Republican House and fighting really bitterly and very uh, difficult, uh, with great difficulty and intensity, doesn't that give him, as you've indicated in one of your pieces here, that uh, there's somebody else to blame for what's going wrong with the country? It's not all Biden's fault anymore. Uh, do you think that is a potential factor by which uh, Republican House victory could be a, a blessing in disguise for Biden's survival? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's a very logical thing. Um, as I was saying before the break, you know, presidents tend to struggle in midterm elections, but they generally win re-election. Um, and a lot of times what happens is the opposition party will gain some control of Congress in that midterm, their first midterm in, in their first term. And it kind of changes things. It gives people a sense of what the other party might do. Uh, it makes Washington seem more divided. And, and maybe that, you know, if people want divided government, suddenly, you know, choosing one side for that divided government, it's, it's not so simple anymore. Um, so I think that's, that's very possible that that could be beneficial to Joe Biden as far as winning re-election or to Democrats as far as winning re-election. Well, again, what what happened, I think of Bill Clinton, who uh, won a pretty decisive victory for his first term, and then he lost 55 seats in the House of Representatives, 55, and then came back to win by eight points over Bob Dole after that. Um, the uh, and, and particularly with Trump looming as a likely challenger to Joe Biden, uh, do you think that Trump's, uh, if, if he is a uh, sort of a cinch for the 
Republican nomination, that that makes it more likely that Biden would run again? You know, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure about that. It's a good question because, you know, on the one hand, um, running against Donald Trump is, is not a is not a walk in the park. Certainly, uh, you're going to be in for a really rough and tumble campaign. Um, on the other, um, I could see an argument from Democrats that if if Donald Trump is the opposing candidate or is going to be the opposing candidate. Um, they better make sure that they have the right candidate to beat him because uh, the stakes are going to be that significant because they really don't want Donald Trump to be back in office. And so one of the things I got to in my in my piece on the Democrats uh, last week was, you know, the, the the argument that certain Democrats might be starting to think of, which is maybe having Joe Biden run for reelection isn't our best option here. Now, it's not obvious who else it would be, but certainly where Biden is in the polls right now, his political standing, how people generally view him on the issues, uh, he's not in a position of strength right now. And so I think there's going to be, depending upon how the midterms turn out, a little bit of a, uh, some, some hand-wringing about exactly where the party wants to be in that 2024 election. And if uh, you know Joe Biden in his early 80s is going to be the guy to carry the, the torch forward for them. Okay, speaking of age, uh, there's a hint today in your newspaper, in the Washington Post, that Bernie Sanders is gearing up for a third, count them, third potential presidential race, and he'd be, what, 86. Um, do, is Bernie Sanders coming back for another shot uh, a good thing or a bad thing for Democrats? <laughs> Well, I should I should specify that I, I I don't have reporting on that. My colleagues do, and and Sanders last year basically suggested that there was a very small chance that he would run again. Um, you know, I think that this this should probably be viewed in in a way in which Bernie Sanders wants to impact the course of the party. Um, there are certain ways in which I'm, I don't think that Joe Biden has been the kind of Democrat that he hoped he would be. Um, certainly, when you run for president before, you, you never really kind of lose that taste in your mouth, and, and sometimes you want to come back for more. I do wonder if, if uh, the 2016 election was really kind of the high watermark for the appetite for Bernie Sanders in the Democratic Party, though, and, and I wonder if he'd be able to kind of uh, reclaim the level of support that he got that time around. Yeah, but and you wonder about whether age would be an issue if our three most likely presidential possibilities <laughs> are Bernie Sanders and uh, uh, Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden. Hey, how about Chuck Grassley? He's a sprightly 88, and he's running for re-election for the Senate in Iowa and highly favored. Uh, does age matter anymore for candidates? You know, it's a really good question, and it's something that I've looked at in the past. I think to the extent that these lawmakers, you mentioned Chuck Grassley, are running for reelection in states that lean in their political direction, you can generally hang on for as long as you want. But there are instances in which it has mattered uh, when it's a tough year for your party and your state's competitive enough that could hamper you in a general election. If you're running in a primary against eight other candidates and some of those candidates aren't in their 80s, um, I can see an instance in which people are maybe thinking uh, to go with somebody who's a little bit younger. So 
I think it, it could matter. It certainly, um, uh, we, we've seen old candidates win. We just had a presidential election with our two oldest candidates ever. Um, but I think there's a difference between uh, those candidates being in their 70s and maybe somebody who's in their 80s, especially if a bunch of them are in their 80s. And uh, let me put you out, because you, you do do the fix at the Washington Post, looking not forward in time, but looking closer to our own moment in time. Uh, can you dare want to go out on a limb and make a prediction of how many seats the Republicans gain, if any, in the House, and uh, whether the Republicans uh, take over the Senate? you have a sense of either one of those, both? Sure. I, I'd, I'd wager that Republicans probably take over both, and, and that's in large part just because Democrats' majorities are so small. I mean, we're talking about a, a 10-seat shift in, in the House and just one seat in the Senate. Um, I, you know, I think that if it were today, you'd be talking about probably a two- to three-seat gain in the Senate for Republicans, probably in the 20s in the House at least, somewhere around there. And that's all very much in keeping with how midterm elections generally go. So I, I don't think it's necessarily outside the, the realm of possibilities, given what we've seen in most of these midterm elections. And finally, uh, there's been so much focus on gender issues. Um, what about uh, Hillary Clinton or Michelle Obama, who you didn't mention, either one of them coming back on the Democratic side and Condoleezza Rice, who actually callers have called about Condoleezza Rice for president, got making a surprise Republican run? Yeah, I, th I think if, um, if Michelle Obama had shown even a, a tiny amount of interest in running for president, she would have been on, on the top 10 list. Uh, she's, she's shown no real interest in, in running for any office, much less the, the top office in the country, but she would be very formidable for Democrats if she did run. I, I tend to think that Hillary Clinton is probably someone who her party would say, maybe maybe sit this one out and let us move forward. Um, and, then, <laughs> and, then, and then Condoleezza Rice, you know, pretty similar situation with, with uh, the former first lady, Michelle Obama, where I think there are a lot of Republicans who would want her to run, and she would probably do relatively well, um, but hasn't really shown that that appetite for for seeking public office. And and I do wonder if um, you know her window may have been before the Trump era when the the kind of the, the old style of Republican politics were more in favor. What a a particular pleasure to speak to Aaron Blake of The Washington Post. Uh, his pieces uh, we'll link to at our website at michaelmedved.com. They'll be out in our free newsletter at, uh, that's coming out on Friday. Uh, appreciate your service for prognosticating about the 2024 election for this greatest nation on God's green earth.